Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Let's begin in prayer this evening. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O strange wonder, great and marvelous, for the fount of life is laid within a sepulcher. A ladder to heaven's heights doth the small grave become. Be glad, O Gethsemane, the sanctuary of her that gave birth to God. Ye faithful, let us cry out, possessing as our commander, great Gabriel. Maiden full of grace, rejoice thou. With thee is the Lord our God, who abundantly granteth his great mercy to the world through thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a priest in the Melkite Catholic Church of America and pastor of St. Elias Melkite Parish in San Jose, California. Father Sebastian Cardazzo earned his PhD in Biblical Studies at the Catholic University of America and has taught at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary of the Fraternity of St. Peter, St. Patrick's Seminary of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and Christendom College, and continues to teach Biblical Studies and Catechetics for a number of institutions. His dissertation was published under the title Seeing Blood and Water, a Narrative Critical Study of John 1934. He is also the author of many articles and a contributor to a number of multi-author works, including the Great Adventure Bible of Ascension Press. He is a frequent lecturer for the ICC, as well as a beloved teacher of scripture in our Magdala Apostolate. Please welcome back to the Institute, Father Sebastian Carnazzo. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Father Hezekiah. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with us. And the evening's all yours. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, first of all, and I, I'm sure that uh, that uh, Peter mentioned this and that Father Hezekiah mentioned this, this is part of a series here. And Peter, have they received the link for the for part one? Yeah, if you're referring to Bound by the Law, yeah, we'll certainly refer or post that in the follow-up email after this if they missed it when we first ran that a number of months ago. Okay, so please make sure, everyone, this is a sequel. Okay, so I can't go over the stuff we did at the beginning. If I did, Peter will kill me. Uh, so please make sure you realize that what we're doing here is assuming a massive amount of material uh, based upon what we covered in part one. So if... Some of the things I'm talking about, you think, yeah, but yeah, but what about that was all covered in part one? Okay, so Peter's going to send that out to you. If any of you are joining for the first time for this two part series, so everyone please realize that 
we covered a huge amount of material in a lecture called Bound by the Law, in which we discussed in great detail the concept of the Torah. What does it mean, the law, that English word, and getting behind it, the Greek word nomos, and getting behind that, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Torah, back in the Greek translation of the Old Testament by the Jews 200 years before Christ and what's called the Septuagint, and how that affects the New Testament then in the use of that word nomos in the Greek, and then how that comes into the English in our English Bibles as the word law. And while all of that is perfectly good translation, there's nothing wrong with it, there is often a misunderstanding based upon our definition of what the word law means, and then bringing that to the biblical text or the translation of the biblical text is in front of us. And so whatever is my head that means, what is law? Is law a thing that restricts me? Is law a thing that, that, um, that if I break it, I get punished? Is law a, whatever the word law is in your head, think about that. That's an, a definition in your head based on your background, education, uh, that is related to a word, an English word called law. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the, the Hebrew word Torah and how it gets to that English word law through the Greek word nomos, which is perfectly fine, understood in this context. And even the word law in modern English is perfectly fine. Think of the, how we use the word the law of thermodynamics, right? Or the law of whatever you want. We have, we have all sorts of different ways in which we use that word even in English that is not the normal way we think of it. But tragically, when people come to read the word law, like the law of Moses, that phrase, they'll think of it in a, in a very uh, modern English restricted way. We dealt with all of that in the previous lecture. We talked about what is law from God's perspective, and that is its direction. Torah means direction. It's like a, someone directing you to where you should go. Someone giving, telling you how to get to the spot you need to go when you pull over and ask, hey, I'm lost. That's what the word Torah really means. It means direction more than anything. And that direction guides you like a law, like a, a thing that helps you go where you need to go. That, that was really the first part of that lecture last uh, in, part, in part, part one. And then we also talked about how Jesus is the Torah incarnate. He's the law, the word of God in the flesh. The first time God delivered his Torah, his law to man was from a certain thing we call special delivery. There's the rel we talked about the, the, the natural law from what Adam and Eve saw. They could discern what God had in plan for them and what was good. But Adam and Eve received special law. God spoke to them and said, do this, don't do this. This is good for you. This is not good for you. And so we talked about how God has delivered his word, his life-giving word to mankind in, in various ways, primarily in what we would call that the, the natural law and special law or natural revelation and special revelation. But, uh, but then the word of God takes on flesh and dwells among us. The word of God the special revelation becomes the natural revelation of certain. It takes on the clothing of natural revelation, becomes 
one. And, and that is part of the glory of the incarnation. The fathers of the church talk about this, uh, of what is the incarnation in regard to this, how the, that the word of God becomes one with the creation that was created through that word of God. And by doing that, gives the opportunity to creation to be restored to life in the Father. In a nutshell, that's what we talked about last time. We also talked a bit about the Judaizer heresy, the first time the church had to deal with the question of the relevance of the written Torah from the Old Covenant versus the living Torah, Jesus Christ. And what is, are these in, are they in conflict or are they to be taken together as two things? Which is really part of the problem we're going to be talking about tonight. And then, um, and then how the apostles responded to this at the Apostolic Council, Acts 15, and how Paul in, in beautifully and incredibly ingenious ways refuted that heresy of the Judaizer heresy in his epistle to the Romans and Galatians, also uh, dealt with it in a bit in the letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians, you know, little spots, but we talked about all of that last time. So listen, if you are in any way right now, in some way caught up in this, in what we were going to talk about, this the messianic Judaism, in wondering whether or not in some way uh, what you are doing as a Christian is inadequate and can be supplied by various Jewish customs or traditions or laws from the Old Covenant. If you are in any way connected to that or, or have questioned or wondered that, then you need to first go back and listen to that first talk. Where we're going to lay the foundation of what we're doing tonight, okay? If you are in any way, you know somebody who's caught up in that, and we're going to talk about how understandable that is. It is so understandable once we understand the context. There's nothing wrong with that person who's caught up in that. There's, there's something wrong with the context, and that's what that's what we're we're talking about tonight. More about that part, part, okay? But the foundational issues and things. If you know anybody who's in, is struggling with these things or a little bit, uh, maybe moving in that direction, shall we say? Please make sure they listen first to Bound by the Law, Part One. Peter's going to send that out, and then what we're doing tonight, okay? Uh, and then uh, also, finally, Peter uh, has also he'll be sending out for you. Uh, and I'll probably mention these again. There's a lecture we did called Acts of the Apostles, the key to the Pauline epistles. Critical, absolutely critical. Uh, mentioned a few times last time we did this, but if you haven't yet done that talk, we're, look, if you you if I send you, if I gave you a pile of, of 14 emails, a pile of 14 emails that I have... Uh, randomly selected uh, from my inbox over a period of, let's say, 15, 20 years, and then sent them to you. You didn't know me. You don't know any, or Actually, it's from somebody else. And I asked you to um, discern who this person, the author is, who his intended audiences were, and why he was writing these emails. You say, okay, all right. What if I said your life depended on it? Well, that's not really fair. That's tragically how most people read the Pauline epistles. They're reading them out of order. 
without any real knowledge about his intended audience in the first century and the original historical context, why he wrote them. And then the order he wrote them. We did all that in Acts the Apostles, the key to the Pawn Epistles. You have to know the life history, the historical context of an author, who he was, why he was, where he came from, the historical context in which he grew up in, when he was writing, why he was writing, to understand what he wrote. Kids today are watching the, you know, the 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 uh, Lord of the Rings series. Well, I'm dating myself. I guess I don't do anything anymore. That was probably 20 years ago. I don't know. But they have no idea who Tolkien was. They have no idea what was going on in England at the time, politically and religiously. Same thing with C.S. Lewis. Great stuff. The Chronicles of Narnia. Entertainment. But those... Series are not doing for a modern audience. Well, maybe they actually started our two now today again, but are not doing for a modern audience what at least what those authors were originally intending. You got to know who Tolkien was. You got to know who 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 C.S. Lewis was. What were they trying to do in England at that time, knowing their their intended audience? They weren't writing those books for kids, and they certainly weren't writing them to be turned into movies, as nice as those movies might be or whatever. I don't know, but they were trying to trying to re-evangelize England at the time. Okay, now what are we doing? And now you got to know who those guys were and their, their religious background, the political situation at the time, who were the people they were writing to. Now you got something. And the same thing goes with the Pauline epistles. Tragically, people are reading the Pauline epistles out of order, out of the historical context. They don't know what half the terms Paul's using even mean anyway. Law. Oh, law. I know what that means. No, you don't. So you go back and understand what Paul meant by the word law. He's speaking Greek, but he's speaking Jewish Greek. It's, it's Greek that is, is heavily influenced by Hebrew and Aramaic. And so you got to go back and see how he, the Hebrew and Aramaic words were being used or were translated into Greek to understand what he meant by those words, like nomos is a translation of Torah. Okay, that's enough on that, Peter. You can send him those links. Maybe we'll do some more about that at the end. Uh, I also did a series on the Pauline Epistles, a very long series. Peter, how long was that lecture? That the uh... Uh, eighteen hours. It's a okay, long one. So, it's a full if course. you want to go through the Pauline Epistles like that, and kind of like in those those uh, fourteen emails in context, that's what that lecture is all about. It's a long lecture. Sorry, Peter. Okay, tonight that's the background there, and I really it's so important for you guys because it's a sequel. You can't. Jump into part two of sequel without knowing part one. It's like Jaws part two and not having seen Jaws one. I saw that in the theater when I was a kid, right? With, was a, with Piranha. It's a double feature. Couldn't take a bath after that for a while. Okay. St. Jerome said this. They will to be at the same time Jews and Christians, but are neither Jews nor Christians. They will to be at the same time Jews and Christians, but at the same time are neither Jews nor Christians. St. Jerome was writing that around the year 400. Okay? He was speaking of Christians in his time. These were the Nazareans. Nothing to do with first century reference to the Nazareans and the Acts of Apostles. This is a group of Christians in his era who began to Judaize. 
Now, what does Judaize mean? We dealt with this in other classes. Judaize means to begin to accumulate, be attracted to various customs and things from Judaism. It's not a negative term or anything like that. I mean, people might use it that way, but it's not negative. To Judaize, to be a Judaizer in a general sense, means simply just be attracted to various things of Judaism. It's okay. A sympathizer of various types of uh, a culture, a world. Lots of people do these things with, you know, maybe someone's uh, likes Italian culture and begins to like, you know, go to Italian restaurants and learn Italian language and and whatever, and go to Italy, even though they have no Italian background to them. Okay. All right. So uh, an Italianizer in a certain sense. Okay. So there have been throughout the history of Christianity for the last 2000 years, uh, groups, individuals and groups who have moved in a Judaizing direction uh, in various degrees, various theological reasons, political reasons, all sorts of things. We already talked about in detail in the other classes, and Peter's going to send those links to you, the first century Judaizers. If you don't know who they are, what was going on, what Paul and, uh, and uh, what Paul condemned in Romans and Galatians, what the apostles condemned in Acts chapter 15, then you really want to go research that. But the Judaizers of the first century are not the same as modern Messianic Judaism. There is a lot of exterior similarities, but there are some differences, a lot of differences at the heart. So, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about here now. And so the we already talked about the Judaizer heresy and that whole tendency that somehow you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised and keeping kosher. Yes, Jesus is essential, but you must be circumcised to keep kosher in order to be saved. That's the Judaizer heresy of, of the first century. We dealt with that in great detail. Paul condemned it. The apostles condemned it. That's not to be confused with modern Messianic Judaism. That is a totally different situation, though exteriorly it may look like that. Okay? All right. So now, uh, as I mentioned from then and then also now until today, there have been various movements. So a modern Messianic Jew should not in any way think that, hey, this is a new idea. This is actually something that's kind of popular sometimes said among some of the groups, not all of them, but some of them, that this is a new mo a new movement of the spirit, that this is preparing for the end times, that this is this is a sign that the the uh the that what Paul said in Romans is now coming you know to fruition. Uh that that the uh that now finally the uh the those branches that were cut off are now being grafted back in and that this is now a sign that we're coming to the great eschological moment. That's the Protestant undergirding there, and we'll talk about it in a second. Uh, but that is uh, that idea that that somehow this is a great, you know, unique moment is is not historically accurate. There have been since the time of the apostles until today various movements in each century that have moved in these directions. There is certainly a concentration in the first three centuries tapering off by the time you get to Jerome, by the time you get to, you know, 5th century, 6th century, you, basically these things tend to disappear for the most part. You see a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a, of this in the Middle Ages. And then for the most part, you don't see much until the modern era in the last two centuries. 
And the what we call Messianic Judaism today is really something in this last century, something that most historians would say, as we know it, is something since the 60s. Though there are certainly things that may have brought it about even 50 to 100 years earlier. So you, have, you certainly have a concentration of this earlier and then in the first couple centuries. And then now here at this moment, we're seeing a little bit more of a development. And But this has been throughout the history of the church in various ways. Okay, now, uh, Messianic Judaism, our primary topic tonight, what is it? And whom do they attract? And that's helpful to understand what it is. And again, this is not in any way, please, if any of you know someone who's involved in this, or someone who, uh, or you yourself is involved in this, this is no way, please, a, a, some sort of a, an attack upon them or anything like this. But we really need to understand these things. So uh, modern Messianic congregations, Messianic Jude Jewish congregations, if you want to call them these things. You've heard me say a thousand times in my lectures previous to this, when it comes up, I will say, and I know this will be offensive to some, but this is this is the interpretation of everyone involved in this, except for the Messianic Jews, um, is that it is Messianic Judaism is neither Messianic nor Jewish, is neither Messianic nor Judaism, and um, and that I will tonight. Of course, I've said that a million times that we should have a whole lecture on this tonight. We're going to talk a little bit more about how that works and uh, and some of the extremes in that situation. So. If we look at the average Messianic congregation, the average one, they are typically very small. Uh, if you know of anyone that's involved in one of these congregations, you're talking sometimes someone, a congregation of five, 10 people, sometimes 30 people, 40, 50. They tend to be very small. You will find some congregations that are larger in the hundreds. But on average, in my experience and study, Messianic congregations tend to be very small. That is not some, there's not something wrong with that. Nothing that's not negative. In Eastern Christian congregations in America, our churches tend to be very small. I got 30, 40, 50 people on a Sunday sometimes. Okay. So nothing wrong with that. Jesus started with 12. So, but just be aware. I mean, we're talking about just kind of the nature of the situation. Uh, so they tend to be very small congregations on average compared to general Christian congregations. They also tend to be, on average, we're talking somewhere in the range of 75 to maybe 80 to 80%, 85%. I haven't seen official statistics on this. Former Protestants. So if you go and look at an uh, average Messianic congregation, now, you may be listening in saying, well, that's not my congregation. Well, you may not be in an average congregation, and that's good. That's okay. However, what we need to be is statistically aware. So if you go and ask the average Messianic Jew who identifies himself that way, what is your religious background? On average and above average, 75, 80, 85%, somewhere in there, they were former Protestants. I mean, that's a fact. So again, I can't give this specific. I don't know if anyone's done an official statistics on this, but just check it out. Check it out for yourself. Make some phone calls, okay? Uh, and you will find that on average, in general, therefore, when you get into these congregations, you will find this. And this is, there is a wide spectrum here, okay? So, um, you know, ask you know, someone about, in Protestantism in general, 
or does say Christianity in general, the variety of forms of Christianity today. What about the variety of Presbyterianism? You know, Presbyterians refer to themselves as the split peas. You ever heard that? I, I, I got that from Presbyterians. They told me that. So uh, because there are so many different kinds of Presbyterians, there are extremely conservative Presbyterians, and there are those that are not. You have strict Calvinists who listen to R.C. Sproul every and you know John MacArthur every five minutes, and you got and you've got Presbyterians waving rainbow flags out the front of their church. Okay, it's very different, and they all say Presbyterian out in the front. You say, "What's well, Presbyterian?" You have very different congregations, different different unions of Presbyterians, etc. So in Christianity in general, there's a huge swath of variety and diversity. Think of the swath of variety of, of Judaism. Think of the swath of, of, of uh, have you been to Jerusalem? Have you seen the different hats? Okay, so uh, think of the, in America, we often say Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed. Well, even each one of those groups encompasses a massive variety of ideas and and, and and perspectives, right? And the same goes with Islam or Hinduism. Okay, we can go on. So what I'm saying right now, please understand that when I'm talking about Messianic Judaism here, we're talking about in general terms. And I'm going to start on one end of the, the spectrum and move to the other end. These are general terms. You may know somebody who is involved in a congregation that is somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, or way at one end or the other, or somewhere, you know, mixing the thing. And if you are part of something like that, and you're listening in tonight, understand that we're talking about a spectrum, okay? There's a spectrum out there, and, and if you're involved in that, you certainly know what I'm talking about, so be honest. Okay, so on one far end of the spectrum, we're going to start at what I would call the Christian end of the spectrum, because... There are all Jews will tell you, any serious Jew of any serious congregation, I don't care what form, will tell you that Messianic Judaism is not Jewish. That's a fact, as far as an official statement from these organizations. And you will find among probably the vast majority of Christian bodies that Messianic Judaism is not truly Christian. But I'm going to tell you there's something that's a little more subtle than that. In fact, a lot more subtle than that. And that at one far end of the, the spectrum, you have congregations that I would say are fully Christian. And you have congregations at the other end of the spectrum that are in many ways fully Jewish. And you have a massive mix in between. Again, so we don't want to overgeneralize this. Okay? Okay, so we're going to start with a far one end of the spectrum, and that is this. You will find on this end of the spectrum, this is the Christian end of the spectrum, congregations in which uh, the pastor likes to be called rabbi. He may wear a yarmulke at the service on Sunday. On Sunday, He may uh, like to say a few Hebrew words here or there during his homily, his sermon. He may say shalom when he greets you. He might start with a prayer in Hebrew, he might say something in Hebrew. He uh, may, uh, the church might be called a synagogue. 
Synagogue is just a Greek word, synagogi. It's a Greek word, by the way, not Hebrew or Aramaic, it's Greek. Synagogi means gathering, perfectly fine. You want to call it a church or synagogue? I don't care what you want to call it in English. It's a gathering place. Okay. Uh, so, and what you have here in this case is a veneer of Judaism. It's simply skin deep and very spotty often. And it's reflective of the pastor himself to the degree that he is involved in this or his research or study or background. Okay, so what you find in these congregations, these small congregations, is that what's going on in that congregation, the language being used, what's being taught, is extremely dependent upon that pastor and his background, his research, his knowledge of Hebrew Aramaic, his knowledge of biblical studies, his interest in all this stuff. Okay, so the uh, on that far end of the spectrum, like I said, what you're dealing with here is a veneer of Judaizing, I'm not using the word there in a negative way by any means, an interest in Jewish culture, Jewish words, Jew Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Jewish language, Jewishness. And uh, but if you lift the hood and you look at what's going on underneath, you find that you are dealing with simply evangelical Christianity. Yes, the pastor was a yarmulke. Yes, he likes to go by the name rabbi. Okay, whatever. Who cares? What does it matter? Okay. He likes to call his church a synagogue instead of a church. Okay, fine. Whatever. It's just English stuff. It doesn't matter. Um, he might like to use, refer to Jesus as Yeshua. Who cares? It's Aramaic versus English. Whatever. I don't know why he didn't speak the rest of the language in English or in Aramaic if he's going to do that, but... So, but anyway, it's fine. I mean, in my lectures, I will sometimes, you guys have heard me refer to a particular individual using the Greek, proper Greek pronunciation or the Hebrew pronunciation or something, not because I have a theological bent on it, it's just because I've gotten used to that because of what I'm doing in my studies. Okay. So Moses, I usually call him Moses because Moses, it's Moshe if you want to really get into it, you know, but, but it doesn't really matter. He who was drawn from the water, right? Uh, Nicodemus. People say Nicodemus. Okay, it's fine if you want to call. I don't, I don't care. But Nicodemus is a Greek word, and because my Greek studies, I like to hear. And I'm saying I like to hear the meaning there because it means something to me. But whatever. So Yeshua, Yahushua, the Hebrew version, or Jesus, or Jesus. I don't care. Whatever you want. Okay. But so that doesn't really matter too much in a sense. I would say from my perspective, when I hear someone doing these things. The question is, why are they doing it? Is a certain a, a good question to ask, and it's simply, I want to get authentic. I want to I want to get attached to the first century. I want to learn more about first century Christianity. Oh, we're buddies then, you and I, we're buddies, okay? Because I'm I'm on that same team. All right. So now, uh, what else here before we move on to the next section here? So yeah, okay. So in a general, if you walk into one of these congregations on the far one end of the spectrum, what I call the Christian end of the spectrum, that is, if you lift the hood, right? If you get under the skin, you are dealing with standard evangelical Christianity in all of its doctrines. They're teaching the solas, sola fide, sola scriptura. They're teaching in solas gratia, if you want the, the three solas. Okay, they're teaching basic authentic trinitarian doctrine about about the nature of god they're the uh and therefore the nature of jesus god and man 
Okay, so it's fully Christian in a sense. The solar part is, has Protestant edge, but fine. Okay, still Christian. And then a minimalism of the sacraments that you find in evangelical Christianity. Okay, so you might get baptism. You might get uh, a Lord's Supper once a year or something like that, or four times a year, whatever. It's just exact same stuff you're going to get in your typical evangelical or fundamentalist church as far as sacramentalism, the minimalism of sacramentalism, and, and the understanding of it, of course, not only the practice of it, but the, um, the doctrines, the essential doctrines, the same doctrines you're going to get there on Trinitarian doctrines and the incarnation, nature of Jesus, true God, true man. And then also, of course, the Protestant solace, okay? So really, when you throw the hood back down, you're dealing with evangelical Christianity with a veneer of Judaism on it. That is truly Christian. Now, I would say that anyone in that situation needs to be reading the early church writings. Now you need to read the New Testament maybe another couple times, especially Acts, and then also needs to certainly be reading the first couple centuries of Christian writings, okay? Because the Bible that we have, okay, our Bible didn't just drop out of the sky here 2,000 years later, okay? This was collected, discerned by, read by, ordered by, and used in Sunday services by Christians in the first couple centuries, and that's why our Bible is ordered in the order in which it exists. The books themselves, not only their collection, but the order in which your New Testament exists is due to liturgical use of the first three centuries of Christianity. Okay, so if you, you say, oh, I don't need them. I just need my Bible. Okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, that's completely irrational. So what you need to do is go look and see who were these people that gave you a Bible? What did they say? What did they believe? And that might help us understand the book they gave to us. Okay, uh, and don't forget, the faith is incarnate, right? It's incarnate. Okay, so uh, now, next step, moving toward the middle of the, of the spectrum now. You will find Messianic congregations that have taken the next step. And that is, they are no longer meeting on Sundays, but rather on Saturday. Why would they do this? Well, it'd be helpful for them to research the history of the Adventist movement in America and the Baptist movement and the groups that broke off of them called the Seventh-day Baptists and the Seventh-day Adventists. And, um, and they should know the history of the, these movements, the Baptists in England, uh, and where the Sabbath-keeping began among the Baptists in England, and why, and how it goes back to Luther in Germany and his Reformation and his misuse of the Ten Commandments in his catechesis. So most people have no idea this history but are in one of these, they're in a seven-day Baptist church or they're a seven-day Adventist church. They have no idea where it's all coming, where they, where, why they're doing what they're doing. Well, they need to know the history, 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 history. Okay, seven-day Adventists picked up Sabbath-keeping from the seven-day Baptists. The seven-day Baptists, a, group, a subset of the Baptists, got this idea from some of the Baptists in England in the English Reformation. When they picked up Luther's catechism, and here's Luther's small catechism. I happen to have these funny things on my desk. Okay, so if you guys could see my desk, you'd laugh. So uh, Luther and his catechism took a new turn in catechesis in which he said, uh, 
we don't need the Bible. I know this seems ironic, but we don't need the Bible to catechize people. What we need is the Ten Commandments. So he took what was the first stage of catechesis from for the first 1,500 years of catechizing someone. And he took the Bible out of that and put the Ten Commandments in that spot. Father Sebastian, you're crazy. I'm not. Just go to the research on history of catechesis. Luther is the first one to create a catechism, his large and small, in which he bound together in his mind what was essential Christian doctrine for someone to know. And guess what? The Bible wasn't part of that. This shouldn't surprise you, knowing that he excluded seven books from the Old and seven books from the New Testament. Not only the Old, but from the New. Thank God his followers put the new ones back in. Okay. Uh, so it's his mis his misuse of the Ten Commandments from, from the Old Covenant and his misappropriation of the command on the Sabbath that eventually sparked the Sabbath keepers of England. We should, Peter, we're going to have to have a whole lecture on this. Anyway, uh, that is stage two. You will find Messianic congregations in which they've gone to the next stage. And that is they are no longer meeting on Sundays, they're meeting on Saturdays. And this is going to be due primarily to influences from Seventh-day Adventism or Seventh-day Baptism. And so I said, well, no, no, that's not what happened in my congregation. My rabbi, uh, no, he doesn't. Okay, trust me. This, there's only one way this stuff comes in, because it's a complete misreading of the Old and New Testament on this topic. And it came from the English Baptist to America. You can trace the whole thing from a history of religion standpoint. So, and this is, by the way, a section of, this is stage two, that attracts Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists are often frustrated with their Seventh-day Adventism because it's only gone so far. It's still Protestant in its feel and everything. Its, its hymns are all written by Ellen G. White. It's so American. It doesn't have a real authentic Middle Eastern feel. And so the uh, so Seventh-day Adventists will sometimes be attracted to a Messianic congregation, which is what we call here stage two, in which they are not only doing the yarmulke and the you know, the gefilte fish and the whole stuff, they got the whole, this the skin there. But they've also ditched Sunday and moved to Saturday. And they're also no longer eating pork. Seventh-day Adventists attracted to this stage. They're not attracted to stage one. For them, like, <laughs> you guys aren't serious. Stage two? Oh, yeah. And so you will find among the Protestants who are in stage two congregations, there will be a good number of them that come out of Seventh-day Adventism. And for a good reason. I'll give you a quick one-second story about a, a friend of mine. We'll call him Joe, who was a former Roman Catholic. He became Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, we started having Bible studies together. He wanted to have Bible studies. Okay, so we started having them. We studied together for about a year or so. became really good friends. And uh, at one point, he realized that there was a problem. His seven-day Adventist pastor didn't know any Hebrew or Aramaic, and he knew my PhD and my background. So he said, so he brought one of to one of the Bible studies a prayer shawl. Sebastian, um, can you help me some? What is it? So he pulls out of his bag this prayer shawl. Oh, it's like stripes and Hebrew writing on it. Oh, where'd you get that? He said, I ordered offline. Okay, why'd you do that? Well, because I mean it, it you put it over your head and you pray, and I'll tell you what. 
man. Okay, Joe. Um, so what, what did you bring it to the Bible study night for? Because my pastor can't read Hebrew. Can you tell me what it says on it? Um, okay. So we, we laid it out on the dining room table and I read it for him. I can't remember. This was 20 years ago or something. But it said something like, you know, Jesus, the Messiah, you know, King of Israel or something. I can't remember what it was. It was very nice, beautiful Hebrew and everything. Okay. So I gave it back to him. I said, what are you doing with it? He said, what night I, I put it on my head. When I pray, I go in my room. You know, Jesus said, go in your quiet room. So I go in my room. Finally, I put it on my head and, um, and, I, uh, and I pray. I said, oh, okay. Okay. All right. You ready for the Bible study? Okay. So we open up our Bibles. Okay. So, so he, he is a guy who, Joe was already, as a Seventh-day Adventist, being attracted to some of this stuff, watching a Messianic Jewish preacher on TV. I asked him, where did you learn? Where did you order this? How did you, where did this come from? He is on TV, flipping their channels, Messianic preacher on TV. And he's like, oh, prayer shawl. Cool. Click. You know, as a Seventh-day Adventist, this was attractive because he's already doing Sabbath keeping and no pork. So, hey, this looks more realistic. I understand that yearning. I understand that yearning. You guys know me. I'm a, uh, when it comes to first century Christianity, I'm what they call fascist. Okay. And I mean that in a good way. At least I think in a good way. I mean, what was the first couple centuries? What were the early Christians doing? That's what we need to be doing. But tragedy today, 99% of Christians have no idea what the first couple centuries of Christians that gave us the Bible, who they were, what they said, or what their names were. That's what we need to be looking at. Okay. Now, that's stage two. You can see where this is going. Now we're going to fly toward the end because it would take us, and Peter would kill me, another five hours to talk about all of the stages. And you can't really break these up because there's no congregation, you say, is in stage two, stage three, stage four, stage five. Everyone's there, but they're all reflective in one way or another of their pastor's stage. What is the pastor into at this moment? And you will often see a progression, by the way, from one end to the other spectrum. Okay. Either the pastor's moving in that direction or someone's church hopping, Messianic Jewish congregation hopping in that direction. There is an, a, an attraction to this. And this is why it's important to talk to the person you know who's involved in this, because they have to be aware of these stages, wherever their pastor is or they themselves are. Sometimes the pastor's not moving fast enough. Hey, pastor, how come you say we can eat pork and the congregation down the street or on the other side, they, don't, they say no pork. Leviticus says no pork. Well, because you see in the New Testament, don't give me that New Testament stuff. Okay, so then they hop to the next one. Or maybe the pastor is the one who's driving the movement and the congregation's kind of trying to trail behind. Hey, pastor, are you sure about that? I've done my study. Okay. Okay, so what, it's either the pastor is driving it, and these congregations tend to move if you watch them, or the congregation, the individuals themselves, will sometimes hop in this direction that we're going now. We're going to fly now to the very other end of the spectrum so you can understand how important this is. I am going to tell you about Messianic Jewish congregations right now that identify themselves as Messianic Jewish congregations and hold to ideas and beliefs that are very different from what we just talked about at the far end of the spectrum. Now we're at the far other end of the spectrum, and these are congregations that if you go on 
Google and say Messianic congregation near me, you will find some of these. But you have to ask the pastor, go attend it on it. And the guy, by the way, this is going to be on a Saturday now. Okay. So they're going to be meeting on a Saturday. No way they're going to meet me on a Sunday. This is the other end of the spectrum. Okay. You got this? So we're at the other end of the spectrum here. They're on a Saturday. They're not on a Sunday. In fact, if you mention Sunday, they're going to be very apologetic against it. That Sunday is a late Christian invention. They're going to give you Seventh-day Adventist Constantine stuff, which is really funny uh, from a historical standpoint. But but there's more to it, and it's not just Saturday versus Sunday. Because Seventh-day Adventists, we had a whole talk on it. For the, By the way, if you guys, if any of you know Seventh-day Adventists, or you're, this thing is, wait, what's that? Peter will send you the link. There was a whole lecture we did two hours long on Seventh-day Adventism. And my brother and I did another one, too, on the Kingdom of the Cults. Anyway, uh, the other end of the spectrum now, and again, if you know someone who says, I'm a Messianic Jew, or someone's listening in right now who's a Messianic Jew, please understand that you are somewhere in the spectrum. So what I'm about to say, don't say, oh, that's not what I believe. Okay, I, I understand that. But there are Messianic congregations that hold to this seriously, what I'm about to tell you. And this is the other end of the spectrum, far, farther end identifying themselves as messianic jewish congregations god is one fine obviously yes right shema israel we, we know the shema right we know the whole thing okay god is one but is there a trinity on the far end of the spectrum no now you may know messianic jews say no i believe in the trinity okay that's your congregation okay but the far in the spectrum, you have to, you, if you don't already know this, you better know this, that there are Messianic congregations who deny the Trinity, that there is no Trinity. There is one God, and there is absolute oneness, and there are not three persons in one God. Okay? At that point, you are no longer dealing with Christianity. And I don't mean in a moral, ethical sense here, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians, but they are some of the nicest people you will ever meet. I saw some today. Nice people. Very nice people. Hindus are nice people. Buddhists are nice people. Okay. So um, when I say the word Christian, we say, oh, be a good Christian. We'll use that in a different sense, right? Sometimes. But but when, I, when I'm talking theologically here, if someone denies the Trinity, the three persons, one God, you cannot, that is no longer a Christian religion. That's no longer part of the Christian religion. Okay. Two, who is Jesus? All Messianic Jews, from the Christian perspective, all the way to the end, this other side, will tell you that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed king of the Jews. We have done thousands of hours on that, so I can't do it right now. Okay? The son of David, long-awaited return of the Messiah of the line of David. They will all agree on that. That's why it's called Messianic. But who is Jesus? And again, this is on this far end of the spectrum, and there's a Huge number of stages in between. Jesus is simply, Jesus is divine? No. Jesus is not divine, but he was the Messiah. And Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed king of the line of David. He is like David, Hezekiah, Josiah. The only difference is he was the last and greatest one. And the one prophesied by the prophets to come as the final great Messiah of the line of David. And of course, accomplish great things, you know, for the people of God. That's on that far end of the spectrum. And if you deny this, you go do it. 
You call 10 Messianic congregations right now, and you call them, and you will find either a pastor who will tell you that, or he'll tell you about a pastor he knows that will tell you that. I challenge you. Okay? Now, three, those on this far in the spectrum will tell you that Jesus taught that the Torah is still in force. Still in force. That Jesus kept the Torah, his apostles kept the Torah, and it is absolutely still in force. You won't hear that so much of the other in the spectrum. What they'll say things is like, Jesus fulfilled the Torah, uh, but Jesus lived the Torah, and so we live the Torah, but not to save ourselves. Okay? A Judaizer from the first century would say you do that to save yourself. The Christian on the far end of that spectrum where we started at does not believe the Torah is essential for salvation, but believes that this is what God expects of us, and we should do what God expects because it's what he told us to do. That's the kind of thing. Very different from the Judaizers of the first century. But when we get to this other end of the spectrum, the Torah is absolutely in force, is absolutely essential, and God expects it of you. Okay. Uh, four, and this is going to scare you. Well, I guess if you're not scared yet, you won't be scared. That there are parts of the New Testament that are not inspired. I came upon this one time, okay? With my seven-day Adventist friend, we hit Colossians chapter two, where Paul clearly says, and I had him read it in his own Bible, that the annual feasts, the monthly feasts, and the weekly feasts, the Sabbaths of the three, the three stages, shadow of the past, but are fulfilled in Christ. I said, what do you think about that, Joe? You read it. It's in your Bible. I don't agree with that. How can you not agree with that? We're Christians, aren't we? We're like, I mean... You know, we got the same little uh, playground here. It's called the New Testament where we're, we got our, we got the, there's the borders of the playing field. There are some places where Paul is wrong. Really? How? I, I had never heard, experienced it before. I eventually met another seven-day Adventist that told me this too. He said, we have what we call an, uh, a, um, a dirty New Testament in which there are good things and clean things, but there are unclean things. Things that Paul taught that were contrary to Moses. I asked Joe, I said, Joe, how do you know when Paul's wrong? He said, well, when Moses said something and Paul says the opposite, then Paul loses. Moses is right. Paul's wrong. That's a passage in Paul that's uninspired. And so you will find at this far in the spectrum, various degrees of doubting the inspiration and authority of the New Testament, particularly Paul and epistles. Again, you might say, I have a Messianic Jewish friend. Uh, they read their Bible. Okay. Well, I don't know what, what spectrum they're on, but if you ask them to be honest with you, and if they've done their research on this movement, they may know of, or if they don't, they'd better do their research of congregations as a whole to this and use the exact same title for their congregation, Messianic Jewish Congregation. Now, finally, and I know Peter's going to get to me if I don't get moving here. He's looking at me. Is he going to finish this in the right time? This is not Father Sebastian's opinion here, what I'm giving you tonight, nor what I'm going to give you right now. And again, this is why, again, if there's anyone listening in who's a Messianic Jew, identifies himself as that, um, I would say identify yourself as a Christian, okay? But uh, if, if you call yourself a, a Presbyterian or a Messianic Jew or a Roman Catholic, or first of all, you're a Christian. Let's first start there. That's, that's what's essential. Let's start there as our foundation. But... What I'm about to say can be quite offensive, but it's the facts, okay? And that is, 
what is Messianic Judaism? As I said, it really depends on what you're talking about of, of a congregation. Like, let, tell me the congregation, tell me the, let me talk to the pastor. Let me talk to the members, what's being taught there. And let's see where they are on the spectrum, because they may be at one far in the spectrum where you'd say they're evangelical Protestants. Okay. I got some problems with evangelical Protestantism, but okay, whatever. It's still Christian. But they might also be way at the other end of the spectrum or somewhere in between. And so it's very important to make sure we know what we're talking about here. When we hear Messiah Jew, I'm a Christian. Okay, what does that mean? I'm a Jew. What does that mean? If you've been to Jerusalem, you, you know what I mean by that question. Okay. I'm a Muslim. You know Muslims. Okay. Uh, lots of variety there. Hindus, etc. Okay. So when it comes to this question, please, again, be understanding of how, how careful we have to be in understanding that each congregation itself is somewhere in the spectrum in some way or another. And the pastor might be slightly ahead or behind the elders or something in this regard. But you can usually put them somewhere in the spectrum somewhere in this broad spectrum, great diversity of practices and beliefs on that spectrum. If you ask any organized body of Orthodox Jews, any organized body, official voice of conservative Jews, any organized body of reformed Jews, I'm talking about organized here, not some random person who says something, Especially when we get to the Reformed area, who knows what you're going to hear. And half of them are Unitarians. You will never find that I know of an official statement from conservative organized bodies, Orthodox, conservative, or Reformed. Again, Reformed is very fuzzy when it gets to it gets to all the way into universal Unitarianism in many ways. That identifies or accepts Messianic Judaism as a authentic form of Judaism. And that, I believe, is very hard for a Messianic Jew to accept, but they all know it. They can't walk down to the local synagogue and feel like they're accepted as a Jew. It's not going to happen. That's a fact. What about the Christian perspective? Any apostolic church, any apostolic church, Greek Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Melkite, Ukrainian Catholic, whatever you want, any apostolic Christian group will not identify Messianic Judaism as authentic Christianity, but rather an aberrant form of Christianity of some degree of Protestantism with some form of Judaizing involved. These are just this is the fact. You can make the phone calls, okay? In Protestantism, because there's a vast variety among them, there are somewhere over, I don't know, what is it now, up to like 60,000 different denominations growing exponentially by the day. You will certainly find uh, among the evangelicals, you'll find uh, some, you'll find uh, among some of the Protestants who will identify Messianic Judaism as a form of Christianity. And I agree with them. As long as we're talking about one end of the spectrum and the various degrees there. But if you're talking about the other end of the spectrum, no. And so this is where the word, that title Messianic Judaism is very dangerous. And that's being used in ways today by many different groups, different congregations that all on the surface look very similar. When you lift the hood, you find some very, very, very different ideas. And now, Peter, 
I believe we are out of time. Father, thank you very much for an excellent talk. Very enlightening and and nuanced. I was uh it's it's really interesting, you know, to see the full spectrum that you described. And uh, you know, of course, very tricky the situation that we find ourselves in where they share the same name. So navigating this, you really do have to ask the questions and probe into those beliefs. And uh, so thank you for giving us the tools. Uh, very helpful, very helpful in order to do that. We're going to move to our Q&A portion of the evening here. Let's jump in here, Father. Your first question. Peter, uh, wait. Peter. Yes, you, Father. There was one more rule. It has, it has to, to be easy. I know where you're going. <laughs> it has to be easy enough for Father Sebastian. Am I right? Is that that's where you're yes. going to that? <laughs> this is very late in the day. One sentence ending in a question mark on topic and not too challenging for not Father Sebastian. Um, we'll start with this one. Of course, we've, we've got to talk about uh, satyrs this evening. We've gotten a couple of questions along those lines. I'll open it up a little bit. Um, this person writes, for example, I've attended a Passover dinner at the parish. Once I went to a New Year celebration at a synagogue uh, simply because I wanted to understand what Jesus participated in. Was that inappropriate? Could you comment on, you know, some of these various practices like Seder meals, Passover meals, New Year celebrations, other Jewish feasts and holidays? Sure. Yeah. So, um, okay. So I think this is a very interesting thing to do for a social, cultural kind of educational kind of endeavor. I wouldn't be doing it in a parish. Uh, but if you want to go visit your local synagogue... And are you want to go visit, you know, you got a Jewish neighbor or something and they're celebrating something? Yeah, go check it out. That sounds like fun. Sounds educational. Great. But please don't think that somehow you're going to be learning about first century Judaism. And that is the error that most people make. And, and, and again, if someone's listening and saying, well, what do you mean by that? Okay. Have you been to a local Baptist congregation on a Sunday? Do you think you're attending a first century service? No. Okay. In fact, and this is something we didn't have time to get into, but, but, you know, there have been a number of, there's a massive wave of Protestant ministers, just general Protestants, but Protestant ministers, because these guys are really dealing with stuff, like seriously thinking about it on a weekly basis, especially on Monday when they're starting to prepare for their next Sunday, you know, homily. They start to ponder, and are what we doing on Sunday what first century Christians were doing? And in general, Christians are just like, yeah, they show up on Sunday, like, yeah, this is what we do. The, yeah, this is, this is, it's very simple. First century Christianity was very simple, and this is what we do. Okay. Uh, what about the guitars? Uh, no, are they electric guitar? No. Oh, uh, yeah, but aside from the guitars on the stage, of course. Okay. Um, but what happens is these Protestant ministers start researching. They First of all, they come to the discovery. That nowhere in the Bible and the Bible alone does the Bible and the Bible alone teach the Bible and the Bible alone. That's the first one. Bing, light turns on. Okay, so nowhere in the Bible and the Bible alone does the Bible and the Bible alone teach the Bible and the Bible alone. So wait a minute. Hold on. Uh, so I better go back and find out what the early Christians taught. If I'm going to be able to read my Bible and understand it, these are Protestant ministers who come to these conclusions. They're desperate. There's, they're, they're, they they got to teach. And they're, I want to make sure they're not just teaching their opinions. Or their interpretations of a text. What do the early Christians understand about this text? So they go back and they start reading the Apostolic Fathers. And then they end up typically reading the next century of fathers and the next century of fathers. And they start devouring and saying, whoa, whoa, 
okay, Christians didn't show up suddenly uh, at the Reformation. Wow. Okay. Our Bible didn't drop out of the sky. Okay. And then they start thinking historically. To quote Cardinal Newman, who was who went down the same path, right? He was he want he's, he's researching the history of Christian doctrine. How do we know what we teach is authentic? How do we how do we get to where we are? Is it still rooted in first century Christianity at its base? Is it authentic? And he decided he went, is an Anglican. So it was a good question. So he went and read the research, started reading the religious fathers. In the process of working on something he decided to write called the history or the development of Christian doctrine. Well, that was very dangerous for his Anglicanism, of course, because before he finished the book, he realized he could no longer remain as an Anglican, but he had to become an apostolic Christian. So he became Roman Catholic, his counterpart from Anglicanism. And, uh, but he, he's very famous for saying this. To know history is to cease being Protestant. To know history is to cease being Protestant. Once you know history, Protestantism is not, it's not plausible. It doesn't work. It's not rational. It's not, it's not a thinking religion. We've had Bible studies on this and lectures, so we can't go on that. So, and there have been massive waves of Christians, and I'm getting to your question, Peter. Don't worry. This is this is I know it's a we're going way back in the pole vault here. And massive waves of Christians, uh, Protestants in particular, uh, and their pastors, who have moved in droves in the Scott Hahn movement, we'll say in general, into the Roman Catholic Church. You guys know Marcus Grody, Jeff Cavins, you know, you could just go on thousands. The Coming Home Network is a big network. If you don't know anything about this, I highly recommend you go read Scott Hahn's conversion story, Rome Sweet Home. Jeff Cavins, Marcus Grodice stuff, amazing stuff. There have also been, maybe those especially probably most of you logged in tonight are from the Roman Catholic tradition. There have been a very similar wave. You say, well, where are the rest of them? Well, they're not all just sitting in their Protestant churches. There has been what's called the Peter Gilquist movement. Peter Gilquist like, was a Scott Hahn counterpart and led a massive movement of, at this point, probably thousands of Protestant ministers in their congregations into the Orthodox Christian world. Either way, we're talking about apostolic Christianity. We can get into subtleties another time. There's nothing to what we're doing tonight. But there is an interest, a very similar interest among Protestants in their experience, the liturgical experience, and even modern Christians will say, like you said, at a Roman Catholic parish, who are looking for something deeper, more traditional, looking for something that gives them some roots. And I applaud them. I understand them. I embrace them. But they're moving in the wrong direction in this, and I'll tell you why. And I think any Jewish historian would tell you this as well, that modern Jewish liturgical practices are not to be identified with first century Jewish practices. Again, ask any historian, any Jewish historian, they'll tell you this. First century Judaism even their synagogue services, are part of a sacrificial religion of the first century. Post AD 70, and by the time we get to what's called the council, I'd say rather the school of Yamnia, a little town on the coast, not far from Jerusalem, you have the beginnings of what is called rabbinic Judaism, in which Judaism has to kind of rethink itself. It's spread out all over the Mediterranean, and 
a number of rabbis were gathered in Yemnia. They weren't allowed in Jerusalem anymore after the Romans conquered the place. And a number of rabbis there said, look, we ain't get that temple back anytime soon. How do we continue to practice our religion without the temple? Christians think of Jews today and they think of rabbinic Judaism. But that's not first century Judaism. Anyone in the history of religion, any Jewish historian will tell you, modern Judaism is a different animal than first century Judaism. That's a historical fact. It's a theological fact. The theology of rabbinic Judaism is different than first century Judaism. One is a sacrificial religion. Go read Leviticus. The other is a congregational religion that is built upon the reading of Torah as the replacement for the sacrificial system. That's a historical fact. And so what happens is rabbinic Judaism is a it's a it's a, a different stage of Judaism in the first century. So if you're going to go and go to a local synagogue, if you're going to do it, I'd say go to a conservative or an orthodox synagogue, you want to go to a reform synagogue to learn about uh the current form of, you know, their understanding of of uh, you know, Passover and that feast day or go to your Jewish neighbor's house. Again, I go to an orthodox or conservative uh uh, how they w- the Orthodox wouldn't allow you there. The conservative might for the Passover. But sure, fine. But realize what you're doing is a study of a religion. You're not doing a study of first century Judaism. That is a historical fact. And anyone who wants to deny that needs to just go, go talk to a historian of religion and especially a Jewish historian. They will tell you that. Go open up any, I, I got a whole stack on my whole shelf of this stuff right now and point of shelves, books on these things. Um, and so rabbinic Judaism is a different species of Judaism than first century Judaism. And it begins to develop in its own way, out of necessity. This is not a critique. The synagogue service itself develops dramatically in the first couple centuries after AD 70. And some of the things they're doing, and historians will tell you this, are in reaction against Christian services or in imitation of. Synagogue services over the next couple centuries after AD 70, well, after Yemnia, after in the 90s, as they begin to develop, are in reaction against Christian services that are housed by Jews down the street or in imitation of. And from a scholarly standpoint, you have to be very careful. When you see something going on in Jewish writings in, say, the second or third century, you might think that you're looking at something that might help you understand the New Testament. But in reality, you might be looking, and it might be the case, but you also might be looking at something that is in relationship to the New Testament, in reaction or development to. My dissertation was on John 19.34, one verse you guys all know, uh, blood and water. And the soldier pierced his side, now came blood and water. There is some very interesting rabbinic uh, commentary on Moses striking the rock in which blood and water come forth. Now, someone who doesn't know history would say, oh, that's what John's trying to say. And you know what? That might be. But it's also as likely that that rabbinic text, which is dated to around 250, is in response to what John said. And so from a scholarly historical standpoint, you can't make that leap because you're going to build a whole dissertation on something that is on faulty ground, sand, not on a rock. 
Okay, so that's for someone else to write a dissertation on that particular topic. In fact, I recommend it my dissertation. Somebody go take that one on. Very interesting. Very interesting. The rabbinic writings as we know them. The rabbinic writings. Rabbi Yitzhak says to Rabbi Yaakov, why did Moses go up the mountain? Rabbi Moshe says, why was there a mountain? If you ever read the Rick writings, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so those writings, please note this, begin to be written down in A.D. 200. The rabbinic writings, the rabbinic collections, the stall stuff you know of, the rabbi says, the first time those things, the records that we have, that Jews have and refer to, Rabbi Yitzhak says to Rabbi so-and-so, the first time those things were even written down were A.D. 200. You think of the formation of the New Testament and life of Jesus and that date. Does that mean that what it is is inauthentic? No. But you certainly have to, from a historical and academic and scholarly standpoint, be very careful when you're comparing to Christian writings that predate it by a century or more. You have to, you have to look at that and say, okay, well, is what's develop, are they in relationship? They might not be. Are they connected? Is John 19 in any way connected to numbers, the commentary on numbers from the British writings? Maybe, but maybe there's no relationship. If there is a relationship, which one's influencing which one? Well, is it an oral tradition that John knows of? It's certainly not the written stuff. So that's the kind of stuff we have to be careful. And that, Peter, is why I would say when you're talking about a modern Seder meal, first of all, I'd make sure you're in the hands of a good conservative Jewish family. But you also want to, before you go there, make sure you understand the Seder meal and its history. Seder just means ordered in Hebrew, okay? It means that it's normal meals, you eat, kids, come, dinner's on the table. The Seder meal, that is the ordered meal, the Passover meal is a meal that has a certain order in which things are done and a certain reason, a certain why, okay? So it's called the Seder, the ordered meal. And, um, and you attend one of these things, fine. But don't you think for one minute when you see a bone on a plate that somehow that that prefigures the bones of Jesus or, or something concocts something in your head. I remember some poor mother of a, a homeschooling mother who took her, she was taking her kids regularly each year to a Seder meal down the street at her neighbor's house. And she had little pamphlets and it was all about how the Christian faith fulfilled the Seder meal. And she showed it to me, she said, look, you're a biblical scholar. Check this out. Isn't it cool? Isaiah, John, Jeremiah, you know, Paul. He's like all these click, 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 click. And I looked at it. Ah, I understand your motivation, but your source is a bit off here. You want to understand first century Christianity and therefore understand your faith more? And you want to understand first century Judaism, understand your faith more? Then go do the real research. Don't go to some neighbor's house. Okay, that's like going to your Baptist congregation down the street and think you're looking at first century Christianity. Any Baptist minister who's left that movement will tell you very clearly, that's not it. So, modern Judaism, in whatever form you're talking about, any Jewish historian will tell you, is part of a long 2,000-year history that in so many ways begins, not a Sinai, but at Yamnia in the 90s, modern rabbinic Judaism. That's a historical fact. Okay, Peter? 
This is great. Thank you, Father. We'll try to get some more questions in here. Uh, Bryce, up on screen. Hi, Father Sebastian. Um, my question was, it's kind of my understanding before this talk that Messianic Judaism was basically kind of the same as the Jews for Jesus movement, where it, mm. they were people who were Jews, raised that way, and they kind of started to study their faith more. They saw Jesus in the New Testament as a fulfillment, and they didn't want to like completely leave their Judaism, so they kind of have found a way to try to be both at once. Should that be kind of distinguished between that and like a Hebrew roots movement where it's like Protestants who are trying to reinvigorate it with Judaism? It seems like you're saying it's mostly that latter half than the first. Well, Peter only gave me one hour here. So um, <laughs> so I had to figure out where we we're going to start tonight. Uh, so I started just like, okay, Messianic Judaism, modern era, 60s to today kind of thing. Uh, but yes, you are. there's an excellent point about a little history of this. How do we get to today? Why are we doing what we're doing today? Many historians would suggest that the modern Messianic Jewish movement is a product of, of course, part of history, but a product of a number of events and things that have happened in the last century or two. Uh, and there's, I could go on for, I mean, people bring up the Holocaust, people bring all sorts of things as, uh, and, and Jewish sympathies and all that whatever, but who knows on some of those. But uh, but historians will certainly point to the events over the last, let's say basically 1850s until 1950s of what you're talking about, in which Christians made a, modern Christians, made a very concerted effort towards uh, evangelizing Jews. And uh, and tried to take on some Jewish customs and things like that, maybe uh, to the degree that they found helpful, or allow Jewish customs as they converted these Jews, as they found helpful. So, uh, in the most recent event, uh, like I said, Jews for Jesus, things like that. So there are some of those organizations are still around. That started back in like 1850. Some of them are still around today. Uh, there are Catholic, there are Protestant groups. Uh, that are basically bent on converting Jews to Christianity. And that's their prime, and they'll do it different ways, different degrees. But the modern Messianic Judaism, while it may be the child of that in some ways, it is certainly a distinct event. Uh, Peter, Peter mentioned, or you, I can't remember at this point, the, the question of, of is Messianic Judaism a place, you, know, you were asking, I guess, a place for uh, a convenient place for Jews to convert. And the answer is yes. Uh, I just recently, just a couple days ago, was talking to somebody about this, uh, who knows, uh, knew someone uh, who was a Jew, uh, who um, still understands himself as a Jew, and uh, suddenly decided they wanted to come to Jesus. And they found somehow a Messianic Jewish congregation and it was a very easy transition. Understandably. Great. Wonderful. And so, I'd, again, I'd say for those who are in Messianic congregations right now, Messianic Jewish congregations, you want to call it whatever it is, in various degrees, the spectrum. Yes, you will find in some of these congregations a higher or lower percentage of Jews who have come to Jesus. And it is certainly a place where they can easily make that transition. Uh, that doesn't mean, therefore, that this is a thing that must or should exist, because the end never justifies 
the means, right? Okay, it's a basic principle. So the just because something is good or works out well, uh, by the way, let me just give you an example. I think you guys heard this. I am speaking to you right now. I am an ordained presbyter of the Melkite Church. I have a PhD in biblical studies, a master's in theology. Because Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on my door when I was in college and handed me a Watchtower magazine and woke me up. Saturday morning, I was probably hungover. Knock, knock, knock. I was in college. College pad, a bunch of guys. Jehovah's Witnesses. Talk to me. Hand me a Watchtower. I walked in, look at this thing. Woo! I got scared. That began a process for me to start to read the Bible and do some research and learn my faith and what was going on and what is the history of Christianity, who are the Jehovah's Witnesses, and all this stuff. Does that mean, therefore... And I can tell you, that was a, a moment that changed my life. We should be going out door to door, hand out watchtowers then. No, right? I mean, obviously not, right, Maura? Okay, so, uh, so I mean, the, the end never justifies the means. We got to think of these things logically, right? So what we need to be doing then is thinking about how we're practicing. And here's, this is a little self-critique now. This is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. Get ready. If a Jew walks into your church on Sunday and does not feel like he's in apostolic Jewish Christianity, then there's a problem. Okay? What do you mean by that? Well, I'll give you a funny story. We were in our little Byzantine Ruthenian congregation in San Luis Obispo called St. Anne's. I was a little boy. Well, I was a teenager. And I remember we're having a service. It's in the evening. Basically a Vesper service singing the Psalms and this chant that is heavily Jewish sounding to anyone who would hear like, whoa, that sounds Jewish. Sounds Middle Eastern. Okay. And it was, it's ancient Christian chant. Visitor, uh, a man and his daughter walk in the door and they stand there in the congregation. They were there for a good 15, 20 minutes. Finally, I see the father say to the daughter something. He points to the door and they quietly walk out the door. So I walked over to him. I said, hi, excuse me, are you, you're, you're new here. Uh, you're welcome to stay. He said, oh, I'm sorry. We got confused. Uh, we were looking for the synagogue next door and we drove in the wrong driveway. It took him about 20 minutes to figure out he was in the wrong, wrong room. He probably saw, heard the word Jesus, saw the, maybe saw a cross and just kind of, okay, wait a minute. He was a reformed Jew, so let's cut him some slack. Um, so anyway, so... Uh, but when he was sitting there, he's listening. He was hearing us singing the Psalms in ancient Christian chant. And he's hearing the Psalms. And for him, he's probably just thinking, okay, this Reformed congregation is meeting in some Christian church or something. Maybe that's why there's crosses and stuff on the walls. But for him, the liturgy he was experiencing was Jewish enough, probably much more Jewish for his Reformed background, that he... He stood. He was there for like I don't know, twenty minutes, fifteen, twenty minutes. So he finally looked at his daughter. And said, "Honey, I think we're in the wrong building." Okay, so I, I think we need to look at our modern Christian services, and I don't mean let's let's just like modify them and make them more Jewish. What I mean is let's look back to first century Christianity. What did the first Christians sing in the morning when they woke up? What did they sing in the evening before they went to bed? They were psalms. How did they sing them? What did it sound like? 
How did it feel? How were their churches built? Did you know this, by the way? You know, I've been to Israel, thank God, four times now with the Institute of Catholic Culture. And you know, we go places no one else goes, of course. We get muddy. And one of the things I love to hear from the archaeologists and the tour guides is this. Oh, uh, Sebastian, uh, over there, by the way, um, there's another dis- archaeological discovery. They just built, they just dug up another uh, church or another synagogue. Listen. Oh, great. How'd they know which one it was? Oh, well, you know, which way it points. Okay. All right. So when in Israel, the archaeologists, archaeologists are digging up first century churches and synagogues and first century buildings, religious buildings, they all look the same. They have the same mosaics of biblical imagery on the floors and on the walls of what's left of the walls. The Garden of Eden, the crossing of the Red Sea with Moses the giving of the manna, stuff like that. Now, if they see clearly a Christian image, they know it's a Christian building. But a lot of times they don't know. There's not enough left, but they'll see mosaics, biblical imagery, and it could be Christian church or a Jewish synagogue somewhere in Galilee or wherever. Synagogue, church, whatever order you want, I don't care. Religious building. Do you know how they make the, they can distinguish it? Which way it points. That's it. If it points toward Jerusalem, they know it's a Jewish synagogue. If it points east toward the rising sun, they know it's a Christian church. That's it. That's all they got to go on. The church buildings were the same. Their decorations were the same, biblical imagery. They, if we could go back, chant historians of musicology would tell you this, their chant was the same. Their psalms were the same. The songs they sang. We need to restore in churches wherever you are, first century Christianity. And then we will see a growth of Christianity and the Christian faith like they had in the first century. No, that's great. Um, maybe we can fit one more in here because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, I'll group some of these together and kind of to follow on, on uh, you know, where you just left off. Uh, what, do, what do you think is it really that is attracting, like you said, a lot of Protestants, um, but people in general, what, what is it that is attracting them to Messianic Judaism specifically? Norman asks, you know, is it indicative of a lack of coherent doctrine among the Protestant denominations? Uh, are they searching for coherency uh, of uh, connection between Old and New Testament? James asks, is it uh, sacramentality? Are they looking, you know, especially regarding the Eucharist and Passover? What, so what is it that you think is driving people? What's attracting them at the heart of this? Peter, I love Q&A part because these are where I get to do the parts of my lecture I had to cut out because of time. So um, I should flip my book and my notes here. Oh. Thank God he asked that question. I wanted to cover that, but I was, I didn't get time. Okay. So um, what is the appeal? Like, okay. So again, Elias congregations, the vast majority statistically are former Protestants, or I could just say Protestants. Why say former, I guess. But um, if you ask the average Messianic Jew, you say, who and what were you? Were you a Jew in your background or were you a Protestant Christian background? 70 easy 75% of the average congregation these things vary 
easy 75% is going to be, they're going to say, I was a film Blake, some form of person. Okay. So now you have to say, what was the motivation was the draw? I already talked a little bit about the Gilquist Han drive in that movement. But this is another movement. This is another movement. They're seeking for something more. Uh, there was a great book. Oh, Peter, you can find the link and tell me the author. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, Evangelical is not enough. Well, I'm talking, find the author's name. I can't remember. Thomas Howard. Thomas Howard. Thank you, Peter. Thomas Howard. If you guys haven't read that book, you need to read it. Evangelical is not enough. It is one of the greatest books I've ever read. Uh, Thomas Howard. He talks about how being raised as an evangelical Protestant, how he began to yearn for something more substantial on Sundays. He didn't know what it was, but he was seeking something. And he um, he eventually moved from evangelical, you know, guitar, you know, electric guitars and bands and stuff on Sundays to, I think it was Lutheran, maybe next. And then graduated in Lutheranism to a much more like Missouri Synod Lutheran kind of. Then eventually he graduated from there to Episcopalianism. Then from that Anglicanism, high Anglicanism. I won't tell you how the book ends, but I think you know how it ends. Uh, I love the last page of the book. Okay, so anyway, Evangelical is not enough. It's a great book because he just tells his story and he writes the story uh, as he's going through the thing. It's just great. And he's just realizing that there's this, like this depravity of substance in his, his Sunday experience. And he's looking for something solid, something he can chew on, you know? And um, so... To answer your question, Peter, and I'm, I remember it was a very interesting story that's connected to this, uh, and that is that there is an appeal to some some substance, and so a lot of evangelicals will stumble into one of these congregations, and a, a friend calls them, hey, my friend's a rabbi, and, he, and a Christian rabbi, and they have services at their house. You want to come Sunday or Saturday? Yeah, okay. So they show up. A lot of times they're house churching, by the way. Uh, that's a whole other conversation about house churching and how it's part of all this story uh, and how these guys become pastors. Uh, so uh, so they, they walk into these congregations and they immediately find customs, traditions uh, that unite the community. Most of the men are wearing a yarmulke. Okay, okay. I put a yarmulke on, I'm instantly connected to those guys. Most of the guys have beers. Okay, I start growing my beard. I'm instantly connected to these guys. Uh, maybe it's a very conservative group of these. The women are wearing all head coverings. Okay, my wife puts on, we're, we're, we're in, right? There's a sense of community that you get there. And there's, because they're small groups, you get that immediately, often. But also, there's some little things you can do very quickly. And all of a sudden, boom, you are part of a community of people that are working together and doing something together. And that's really important. That is Christian. That's what we're missing in these mega churches. You know, I, I told you, our, we have one in the Eastern church. You guys know I'm biased on these things. In the Eastern church, we have one service on a Sunday. That's it. And if you need more room, that means go start another church for another group, start a mission. You don't want more than 100 people on a Sunday, ideally, 
because you start losing people. The pastor doesn't know their name. He doesn't know what's going on in their lives. He can't talk to them on Sunday or a handshake out the door. Forget it. It ain't going to work. You got to have a congregation that comes together. Our church comes together. If you get any guys in the Bay Area, I invite you. People start showing up. The service starts at 10 o'clock. Orthros, morning prayer. All Psalms at 10 a.m. My wife and I and the kids, uh, we get there at nine o'clock at the latest to start getting everything ready. And other people show up to help us. 10 o'clock, we start Orthros from 10 to 11 is morning prayer. As people are starting to show up, singing Psalms, beautiful chant, ancient service, back to the first century. Then, actually back to time Moses, actually. Then we start what would people would call the mass or the divine liturgy or the Sunday service. Because my home is going so long, it just takes about two and a half hours. Then we have the agape meal. We have dinner. We have lunch together. People hang out and socialize. People, the service starts at 10 a.m. I'm kicking people out this Sunday. Is it Monday day? Yesterday. We got out of there on 5 p.m. And I was telling people, you lock up. I'm out of here. I got to go. I got my wife and kids home. Okay. That's what we need to restore in our churches on Sunday is that community experience. And when you go into a small church community, I don't care what it is, a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall, a Baptist service, a little Catholic church in the country, a Orthodox, whatever, if it's small, you get that community sense. But when you walk, if when a Protestant walks out of a mega church, evangelical mega church, they walk into a little church, little community, 5, 10, 20 people, Messianic Jewish congregation, and then they see some little customs there being this uniting them, and they can easily start being united with that. That's very attractive, and for good reasons. We want to belong. We should belong. That idea that your pastor doesn't even know who you are, doesn't know your name, you saw him at a grocery store, that's insane. Maybe a whole study on that, Peter, but I'll probably get fired. Okay, and then, and then furthermore, uh, okay, sense of community, uh, was it, uh, oh, and then finally, a sense of authenticity, right? You walk out of this mega church band service, and you walk into this little congregation, in which they're singing, often with no instruments. And uh, and and some of the words are Hebrew. The pastor's got a yarmulke on. There's a couple words in Hebrew. Maybe one of the hymns had a word or two in Hebrew. There's immediate connection to first century, right? Judaism, there it is. It's, hey, there's Judaism. And there's a, a feeling of, of being rooted. And that is... And I think a very good, uh, not think, I know that is a good feeling, a, a yearning that every Christian should have. But the problem is, is that they are not seeing first century Judaism nor first century Christianity. And they need to recognize that. And I'm not in any way critiquing those congregations saying, hey, you're not good enough. No, they're all, everyone's in process here. Uh, modern Christianity is in crisis right now. Modern Christianity of whatever group or congregation or denomination someone's in needs to get their eyes back on first century Christianity like a beacon in the darkness. And that will unite Christianity once again. Not you join me, we'll join you. I give up mine, you give up yours, and we'll come to it. No. We look at first century Christianity and how they did things and what they believed is the light that we all, or the umpire that we all have to agree on. Otherwise, just take your Bible and toss it, because this is a product 
of the first three centuries of Christianity in its organization and collection. And I'll just, I'll end this, Peter, a little quick story on this, and you're going to kill me because it goes on too long. We had a little baptism, Tomas, my son, and a little church, a little mission we had in Nebraska. The bishop came for the baptism, very nice blessing. And a, de- a great deacon there, and we had a beautiful service. Baptism as part of the Sunday service, which is early church style, always as part of the Sunday service, joining the congregation. And... Um, but it wasn't fancy, guys. I'm telling you, it was not fancy. Well, two interesting conversations came out of that experience. There was a visiting professor at the seminary where I was teaching who was a historian, a patristic and liturgical scholar, early church literature and liturgics. I asked him if he wanted to come for the Sunday service. He came. And it was all done with the Sunday service. We all went down the basement to celebrate the baptism. As we do in our Eastern churches, the basement, we have a big party down there, and it's eating, okay? About 15 minutes later, I went back upstairs to make sure the candles were blown out and things were cleaned up. And there he is standing in the church all by himself. And I asked him, are you okay, doctor? I'll leave it blank here for anonymity. Oh, yes, Sebastian. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, we're all downstairs. You're invited. Everyone goes to the baptismal the party downstairs. Come eat. Oh, I'll be down there in a minute. Okay. Then he looked at me very sternly. He said, do you know what you just did today? We baptized a kid? He said, yeah. That was a second century baptism. Yeah, I know. He said, no, you don't understand. I am a biblical, I'm a, a patristics and liturgical scholar. I have been writing articles and books on first century Christian liturgical celebrations for my whole career. I didn't know you people still exist. That was the best compliment I ever got. The next one was I came down the stairs. I had invited a Protestant friend of mine who had a master's degree in biblical studies from Duke University and was working on his PhD. Really bright guy. We were really good friends. And I walked up to him. I went down the basement. I thought, well, I'll let that guy up there for you. I come downstairs and there's Jeff. And I said, Jeff, how's it going? Good, special. He's getting a cup of coffee. I said, hey, uh, how'd you like service? He's pouring the cup. Um, can we talk later? I mean, not like right now. Maybe this week I'll call you. I'm not ready to talk right now. Okay. Wednesday, the phone rings. And this finishes the question that came up at the end here. Um, especially this is Jeff. Oh. So I reached into my holsters and made sure my apologetic six shooters are ready. Okay, fully loaded. Let's go. Yes, Jeff. I taught courses in apologetics. I was ready to go. Yeah, Jeff, let's go. What's up? What is it? And he said, I have a question for you. I want you to be honest. Yes. Remember, I told you I was going to call you and we're going to talk. Yes, Jeff. Was what you guys did on Sunday what you do every Sunday? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm thinking repetition in prayer, you know, something like that. I'm oh, Call no man on earth your father, you know, braven images. Who knows what he was thinking? I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I got, I'm fully loaded. Okay. Yes. He said, well, that's what I thought. Okay. Okay. Come on. Let's go. I'm ready for you. And he said, we were good friends, but we knew each other really well. We knew our, our backgrounds and everything. And again, this guy knew his Bible very, very well. And he said, well, Sebastian, we just can't compete. What? He said, I said, we can't compete. So I put the guns back in the holsters. What are you talking about, Jeff? And he said, look, 
what do you mean about you you do that every Sunday? I said, well, it's basically 90% of the same. I mean, the hymns, the songs, I mean, they change a little bit every eight weeks. We have the eight, it's an eight-tone cycle of our chants. So there's a little variation there. And then, of course, the epistle, the gospel, the homily change because it's a one-year cycle. Um, but but yeah, I mean, most of the service is basically memorized. That's why people don't even have books. Yeah. He said, well, look, when I go to church on Sunday, I'm going to experience liturgy. And I know what you're thinking. Protestants don't call it liturgy, but let's be honest, it is liturgy. Every church has liturgy. He said, so, so when I go to church on Sunday, what's happened is our pastor, the Monday, former Monday, had been on vacation. He had his day off. Which he's supposed to have the day off, didn't take calls. He just prays and thinks about his next Sunday's homily. And then on Tuesday, he gets in the office and he calls the music minister to let him know what the passage he's going to preach on. The music minister calls, you know, whoever and so and so, and they start making, they start setting things up. Sunday morning comes and there's a liturgy. There is a liturgy there. We have our opening hymn, we have our whatever, we have this, we have that. It closes with a hymn, there's the homily. It's all structured, it's a liturgy. I said, yeah, Jeff, I've been to Protestant services. I know. He said, I know, I know. I just want to make sure you understand. They don't call it, we don't call it liturgy in the evangelical church, but it is liturgy if we want to be honest about it. Okay. Okay. Okay, Jeff. What's up? What's going on? He said, well, I said, but you can't compete. Why, Jeff? What are you talking about? He said, what I experienced on a Sunday was created in one week. What I saw you people doing on Sunday, you've been working on for 2,000 years. There was a long pause. I wasn't sure what to say. Simple. Yeah, Jeff, that's what it's all about. Apostolic Christianity. We don't reinvent the wheel. We don't try and make something up to make look like what we think something looked like in the first century. We don't make something up to get back to our topic, to, to what we think first century Judaism looked like, to make it look like what Jesus or the apostles, what we think they were doing. What we need to do is be real historians and really authentic and honest with ourselves and honest with God and the Holy Spirit and go back and do real research. Go back and read the New Testament for real, the Acts of the Apostles for real, maybe five times. And then read the Apostolic Fathers. Read the Christians who studied at the feet of the Apostles, Ignatius of Antioch, for example, Barnabas. What did they say? What did they understand about what the apostles taught? And if you think, if someone thinks that somehow, well, we can't trust them, well, then you can't trust this because they handed it to us and told us it was written by them. The Gospel of Matthew, there is no ancient manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew. The original one doesn't exist. The original manuscript of John doesn't exist. The original manuscript of all New Testament writings don't exist. There are copies of copies of copies by the first couple centuries of Christians. And some of the most, the only things from the New Testament is stuff, you can't date it earlier than more like, like the fourth century from a copy standpoint, a manuscript standpoint. You got to trust the guys that made those copies. And furthermore, how do you know Matthew wrote Matthew? Matthew didn't write gospel according to Matthew and then start writing. A scribe put that up there because that was the Christian tradition that was written by Matthew. How do you know Matthew wrote Matthew? And if you don't know that Matthew wrote Matthew, except that some scribe a century later stuck it there on a manuscript, then how do you know that that's actually inspired or an apostolic writing? You don't know. If you're interested in being an apostolic Christian, if you're interested in your Bible, then you better know who the first couple Christian centuries 
were and who those guys' names were who made copies and put gospel according to Matthew on the top of the text because he heard from grandpa that Matthew the apostle wrote that. And that's the entire New Testament. Peter, I think we're probably out of time. <laughs> we are out of time. It's classic Father Sebastian to bring us to the, the brink of doubt. You know, do we even know? And then take us back to the realm of tradition and, and the safety of, of church and, and the, you know, the Holy Spirit guiding us through 2,000 years of unbroken worship. Father, thank you very much for your talk this evening. Father, could you close us in prayer this evening? Heavenly King, consoler, spirit of truth, present in all places and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell in us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.